Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming one of the superstar uh, attorneys, uh, Mr. Mauricio Raul from Premier Law Group. Welcome to the show, uh, Mauricio. Thank you for taking time. Thanks, Akar. Appreciate it. Looking forward to uh, our conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, Mauricio is uh, a syndication attorney with Premier Law Group. He's been practicing for more than 20 years. Uh, he has several, uh, you know, GP and uh, limited partnership investments. He is great speaker. He is connected with uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Ken Michael Roy, Peter Schiff, and a lot of real estate guys, uh, Robert Russ, uh, uh, and the group uh, that, you know, a lot of folks uh, know. Uh, and he is a somebody, uh, a leader that I think all the real estate investors uh, kind of go to person for a lot of advice and some of the cutting edge uh, things that kind of shapes the industry on a uh, regular basis. So, uh, so with that background, Mauricio, uh, just kind of quickly give us the background uh, in your own words and perhaps we can get, uh, get started. <laughs> Yeah, well, I appreciate those kinds of words. So, yeah, I've been, as you mentioned, I've been doing this for just over 20 years. I started, uh, you know, like every other, well, maybe not every other lawyer, but I started a law firm um, doing securities work uh, in the on the litigation side. So I was I was defending all these brokerage houses, the J.P. Morgans and Goldman Sachs and, and Merrill Lynch's of the world. Uh, but I was on the litigation side, so I was always responding to lawsuits and defending these my clients and going to court and, and depositions and emotional stuff. Um, and, but I knew really on that that's not what I wanted to do and I was really into real estate and so long 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 story short I came across the the amazing little purple book by uh, by by Robert Kiyosaki this was uh, I don't know 15 20 years uh, 16 years ago um, and um, you know obviously changed my way of thinking blew me away and and that led me to meet the real estate guys which really are the, the the reason why I was able to get out of the law firm and I went to work in-house. I was actually their general counsel for, for a few years, doing all their all their syndications, all their asset protection. Uh, and then that kind of just evolved. And I just kind of started my own firm in 2000 and, I think it's 2006 is when I started it. Um, kept the real estate guys as a client, but just started kind of building my practice. Uh, and it's evolved now to the point where I personally, all I do is syndication. Uh, that's my 100% of my practice. Uh, I, we brought on a real estate attorney now, so we do all the transactional as well, but 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 Carrie handles that. But between Bethany and I, we do all this indication work. Uh, and it's kind of nice because, you know, back back in the law firm days, you know, when you're doing litigation, you're fighting, right? You, there's somebody sure. who's trying to get money from your client and there's, it's just very, there's a conflict. And, and as, an, as a lawyer, I, I'm not very good with conflict, which is probably not a good trait <laughs> to have if you're an attorney. But uh, so syndication is really nice because, you know, my clients, uh, which are primarily real estate syndicators, real estate investors, yeah. and my we're aligned. We're both excited to work with each other because I'm sort of a an important piece or a stepping stone to get where the client is now to 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 where they want to go, which is to buy this property and raise this money. And so it's just a much more relaxed. I don't, I don't want to say stress free, but certainly much less stressful 
than having to go battle in a deposition or on court or an appellate and argue in front of judges and all that stuff, which is what I used to do. So it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And I've been doing now syndication exclusively. Uh, man, it's probably like eight years now, just 100% syndication work. Awesome. Awesome. And, and knowing you uh, for so many years now, uh, Mauricio, uh, it is a pleasure to kind of see you in conferences, uh, in the speaking circuit, and some of the advice you give all the time, uh, whether it's your social media or LinkedIn and things like that. We, we all have enjoyed that. And, and as you shared, you know, it's, it's a, such a nice way to kind of be on the cutting edge and kind of see, you know, and it's a personal growth as well, right? You know, you're seeing which markets are developing, you know, what's, what's uh, sort of, you know, how we are kind of doing the industry obviously will will talk about and touch upon the some of the pandemic issues that have come along as well and, and you know it's, it's great to be in that thought, thought leadership space for sure right um yeah i mean it's great to go to all these events as well as you know say because that's you know we, we've been hanging out on those events and it's just a great way to meet other people that like-minded sure. that are in that industry so if you're somebody out there who's, who's already doing this or is thinking about doing this or just investing in real estate in general going to these conferences really allows you to not only establish these relationships which are so important in this business sure. but also just kind of keeps you sharp and at the cutting edge of what people are doing uh right and wrong uh and uh and that's that's that that's been very helpful for me because i get my pulse on what what people are actually doing out there in the real world uh, in addition to my clients and uh and then i can actually put some content together based on that because uh, some of the stuff uh some uh, some of the syndicators are doing are, are not quite what I would be recommending. So it's always nice to put some videos together on that. Sure, 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 sure. Now, uh, speaking of, you know, like, for example, a lot of people don't realize, you know, how syndications work, uh, Mauricio, or like, you know, what are some of the safeguards that are kind of written in a bulletproof SEC uh, yeah. law books and things like that. Can you maybe share some of all of that stuff, perhaps uh, that will help uh, kind of ease the mind of uh, some of the passive investors, perhaps listening to this? Yeah. So let's, let's frame it a little bit. So, you know, most real estate investors start investing for their own account. They buy either single family homes or multifamily or whatever. And at some sure. point they run out of their own money or they want to scale their business. And so what tends to happen is they, they start, you, as Robert, might, Robert Helms likes to say, you have two choices at that point. You either stop investing in real estate or you go raise money and, and use other people's money sure. in order to go do your deals. And so that's what most people do. They go out and they, they, they get capital from individuals and that process of, of pooling other people's resources, whether it's capital, credit, relationships, whatever, that's what sure. the syndication is. Right. It's just simply the pooling of resources so you can go do a bigger deal that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do on your own. Sure. Um, and so what you just have to realize really early on is the minute you start doing that, you fall into the world of syndication of securities rules, securities laws. Sure. Because when you, when you raise money from passive investors, you're essentially issuing securities, which is not something you typically think about because you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm just... I'm just buying a piece of property or, you know, why, I'm, why, is, why are securities laws involved? But sure. essentially, anytime you have passive investors, anytime you are receiving monies from passive investors where the returns are generated by your efforts, you're going out and actually doing all the work, that's a security. And as soon as that happens, you've got to comply with all the rules and regulations, federal, state, all that kind of stuff, which sure. um, is kind of a, not kind of, it is a huge pain for the syndicator, obviously, because there's a cost, there's a compliance cost, sure. but it, that it's really meant to protect the investors, right? The investors sure. now have some level of protection from the law, which doesn't just allow anybody to go raise money and promise the moon and just like, just take their money. Sure. They have obligations, uh, certain disclosure requirements that they have to give to the investor where they have to literally 
lay it all out on the table and let the investors know, look, here's all the good stuff from the investment. Here's all some of the bad stuff. Here are the risks. And that allows the investors to review all the materials, ask all the questions, and then make an intelligent decision whether this sure. is a, an investment that's suitable for what they're trying to accomplish. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Now, Mauricio, it's, it's great to be involved and it's great to be, uh, you know, motivated to kind of do different things and, uh, you know, be excited about the deal and stuff like that. And, you know, I guess, uh, as I always like to uh, quote Jim Rohn, that you don't, you can either be motivated or you don't want to be an idiot. You don't want a combination of be a motivated idiot, as Jim Rohn uh, right. would say, right? That's so, right. Uh, and, and, and where I'm going with that also uh, there, Mauricio, is that it's so easy nowadays to kind of be on social media and just post something that not realizing that you perhaps may be violating, uh, you know, some of the security laws. So could you maybe explain us like, you know, what are some of the kind of the do's and don'ts of uh, different types of syndications uh, that are there, like typically we call the 506B and the C sure. under the... Yeah. So, so once you realize, you're kind of piggybacking off what I said before, once you realize that you're selling, you're in the business of selling securities and having to comply with securities laws, then really there's just three things you think about. One is registering your syndication with the SEC, which you never want to do. That's just a, that's basically going public. That's just the last thing you want to do is register. It's going to cost you too much money and spend too much time. Sure. Uh, or you have to find an exemption to that registration process, which is what, what we do, sure. or it's illegal. It's kind of my third little thing I threw away there. And so what most people do is they rely on a, one particular exemption, which is the most, by far the most common exemption, which is this rule 506B, as in sure. boy. 506B is an exemption to registration. It allows somebody to go do this without having to go to the SEC and register it. And those have some limitations. I mean, it's got some great stuff in there. They can raise unlimited, unlimited amount of, amounts of money. Uh, you, can, you can receive money from non-accredited investors, which is really nice. A non-accredited investor is somebody that is basically not a high net worth individual, right? Sure. And so a lot of syndicators, you know, there's only so many high net worth individuals. So the, the idea of being able to get to some non-high net worth individual, that's even a word, as long as they have some level of sophistication, sure. that's a very attractive thing. Sure. Um, and then the main prohibition really of this exemption, which is kind of what you were talking about, is you cannot advertise on this exemption. So you cannot go in, on social media and pitch your deal. You can't stand from the top of the mountain and scream about it. You can't go on podcasts. You can't go on whatever. Sure. Uh, you have to have really a pre-existing relationship, a pre-existing substantive relationship with everyone involved, sure. which essentially limits you to, again, friends, family. I mean, it's a private offering. It's meant to be private. Right? It's sure. not something sure. that, that you, if you want to go on social media, that's great. Mm -hmm. then go pick a different exemption, pick, pick an exemption that allows you to go advertise. And there, there are several that do that, but most sure. people rely on an exemption that does not allow them to advertise, which means talking about their specific deal on social media or any public form, including their website, by the way, people forget websites are public. So mm -hmm. unless your website has a password protected tab, that's also going to be considered advertising. If you put stuff on there, um, that's, that's where most people, I think um, that's probably where most people, uh, get hung up on a little bit on, on, if they do an exemption because inevitably what happens is you know you start raising money and you realize especially if you're a first-time syndicator you realize it's not as easy as it seems that uh, you, you you typically people will say yes and then you know they won't invest and and you know there's a saying that you probably need to raise probably two or three times what you're trying to raise because inevitably two or three you know a third to, to two-thirds are going to bail uh, and so people tend to go to social media it's very easy to just post and try and get uh, you know people you know you may have five thousand friends or you may have more so sure. going on social media is tempting 
but um, it, it will it will affect your exemption and not allow you to go with that exemption, which means you got to find another exemption. That's that's the that's the problem. Sure, sure, sure. And what about then 506C, which allows you to advertise? What what are some of the benefits that come? So five, 506C is a great exemption that essentially came online uh, in 2013. Now September 21st, I think, or 23rd of 2013. So it's been almost seven years now. Uh, it essentially allowed you to advertise. It lifted that prohibition against advertising. So now you you can go under a 506C on podcast, on social media, on the radio, on whatever, check mm -hmm. out an ad in the newspaper. Sure. But your limitation is you can only accept high net worth individuals, what we call accredited investors. And just so sure. that no one's left behind, an accredited investor is anyone who has either a million dollars in net worth, excluding their primary residence, mm -hmm. or has earned $200,000 the last two years, in this case, 2018 and 2019, mm -hmm. and have a reasonable expectation of earning that same amount this year. Sure. And if mm -hmm. you're trying to make it with a spouse, uh, a, married, a married couple, that, that number goes up to 300,000 on the income level. So sure. you're limited to those investors and you have to verify that they are accredited. You can't just take your word, you know, you can't just ask them and they can tell you, you have to verify, which typically means you're looking at tax returns or a letter from their CPA or something that really verifies to you that they are in fact accredited. And those are really the, really the main differences, if not the only differences between those two is the, is the, is the prohibition against advertising and, and allowing you to take, uh, or not allowing you to take non-accredited if you're doing a 506C. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Now, you mentioned, Mauricio, that we have to have existing substantive relationship, right, uh, with a lot of this. Now, obviously, you know, we have our friends, our uh, family network, you have your own acquaintances from, let's say, a school or a soccer club and things like that, right? But, you know, we obviously have the world of social media where you're obviously interacting with a lot of people. People have a lot of good intentions that, hey, I want to learn more and like, you know, kind of tell me more about what's happening and things like that. Uh, and, and we kind of hear about that, oh, yes, there may be some kind of uh, a term that gets thrown around like a three-touch rule and things like that, right? Uh, so could you maybe help us understand uh, what are some of the ways we can properly establish a relationship and what can withstand some of the uh, kind of the guideline or guideposts that perhaps may be there from SEC that what, what, what are the best ways to establish that relationship? Yeah, so the good news is typically the SEC doesn't help us that much. They're very vague and broad and we, we, we don't have much certainty. But mm -hmm. when it comes to this subject, it's one of the few areas that I've found that the SEC has actually given us some pretty good, um, some guidance, right? Sure. And so mm -hmm. uh, there is a, there are eight steps actually that the SEC, uh, it's not the only way to do it, but the SEC has basically said, look, the, the idea is for you to really get to know your investor, right? You sure. have to take some steps to know them. There's no magic three-touch rule. There's no 30-day rule. It's, it's really the quality of these interactions between the investor and the prospect. Sure. But essentially, in order to get a substantive relationship, there's about eight things that they recommend doing. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do all eight things, but mm -hmm. best practice would be to do as many of those as possible. So if you don't sure. do eight, seven out of eight is probably pretty solid. The further you get away from that, the harder it is for you to argue. But essentially, mm -hmm. and I'll give you the first couple that off the top of my head, um, but essentially, you want to first start off with a really detailed questionnaire. A questionnaire mm -hmm. is key, not just are you accredited or where do you live or what's your phone number, but literally those questionnaires 
that are similar to the ones that you do when you fill out a, a brokerage account and you're looking for a margin account or a stock. You know, how, what's your level of experience? What's your, what is your criteria? What are your goals? Like a really, really detailed um, questionnaire, sure. which I finally got around to doing a sort of a little template for people. So I'm happy to send that out to you guys. But so awesome. I've got a template. You, you're welcome to, to steal it. Um, so that's step one. That's one of the eight steps. Then what sure. you want to do, because these are probably the top two. One is the questionnaire. And the two is you want to get on the phone at least mm -hmm. once, but get on the phone and get to know them on the phone. Probably go through the questionnaire, but just really the, the goal mm -hmm. is you're trying to find out whether this investment is suitable for that particular person. Mm -hmm. And that person is supposed to be asking you questions so they can find out what's, you know, what's the syndicators or the, you know, what, what is their criteria? What is their philosophy? Does mm -hmm. it match? Um, and again, it, it's, is it possible to do that in a couple of days? Probably, you know, I always, I always, I always give the example of, you know, with the real estate guys, we often go on these field trips abroad. Like we, we'll go to Belize for three days. So sure. like if you and I were on these trips, we would spend 72 hours together, nonstop breakfast from the first time we woke up till late at night, you know, at the bar, we're spending 72 hours together. So I would argue after those three days, we're going to know each other pretty well. And, and I'm going to walk away pretty much having a substantial relationship. Sure. On the other hand, I could get to know you today. And then I may just touch base with you on email, like once every six months or something. I mean, it could be three years and mm -hmm. we don't really have a substantive relationship. So again, it's the quality of the interactions sure. uh, much more than any magic timelines. But, but those eight things, um, uh, which again, I'm happy to send that. I actually put together a little blog along with that. Um, sure. That we'll we'll link up in the show notes for sure. We'll link it up. And I did, you, I, you've probably seen the YouTube video that I did on as well. But these eight steps is how do you take a complete stranger that you met on, on a networking event or on social media or somehow you got their contact information. How do you take them from a complete stranger all the way so you establish a substantive relationship with them mm -hmm. so that you can offer them a future deal because you still can't offer them the present deal sure. because remember you have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship and that means pre-existing the offering sure. so as soon as your offering starts once your deal starts anybody that you don't know that's not already in your sphere is not going to be eligible for that deal if you're doing a 506b sure 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 sounds good sounds good thank you and we and thank you for offering that questionnaire yeah we will we will certainly link that up right now for passive investors to understand uh mauricio that okay is the deal done right what are some of the checks and balances what are some of the key steps you can kind of relate that uh you know like passive investors should look at is it the sponsor the deal the market uh, how do you kind of uh, guide uh, some of those things yeah. So, I mean, hands down, I think the most important thing for a passive investor is to look at the sponsorship team, the executive sure. team. Right? Mm -hmm. Who, who's going to execute on this plan? There's one thing to put a pretty little brochure and pitch deck together and throw a spreadsheet together and how everything's going to be wonderful. But sure. at the end of the day, can the sponsor execute on that plan? What's their level of experience? Have they done it before? What does their team look like? Um, you know, is this their first time they've ever bought a piece of real estate? Is this the 20? Like all those things are sure. super important. And that's, yeah. that's probably step number one. Step number two is understanding that there are all these disclosure documents that the syndicator will provide you. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if, if you have non-accredited investors in the deal, you absolutely have to do a really detailed disclosure document, which we call a PPM, a private placement memorandum. Sure. And that's the document that just lays it all out there. All the terrible things that you, how you can lose your money. Uh, very akin to, as I probably heard this before, but uh, the medical consent form, right? You go into surgery. Sure. I've had oral surgery many times, getting my wisdom teeth out. They hand you that yellow sheet, the medical consent form, and they tell you all the ways that your wisdom teeth, you can get an infection, you can get some bleeding, some swelling, you could die from getting, you know, all that nasty. Sure. But you sign it. It's, it's like, look, I understand the risk and I'm willing to go forward with my surgery. Same sure. thing with the PPM. Here's all the ways you can lose the money 
but I understand these risks and I'm, I'm going to sign on the dotted line and, and, and go forward. That document is, is required under a, under a 506B. Mm -hmm. And what I found is sometimes syndicators that are not well established or not really credible, they try and cut corners, right? They try to save some money on the attorneys because the compliance is expensive. It's not a cheap process. Sure. And so they'll try and cut corners and not not you to use a PPM or and then they give you all these excuses to why you don't need one. And in my experience, every time I've seen that, it, it's kind of a sign that they're cutting corners here. The question is, where are they? Where else are they cutting corners? Because I've had experience sure. where when they don't comply, you know, you fast forward two years and, and it turns out they're either flat out fraudulent, which has happened a couple times. Uh, or just the deal's gone south because they they've just been cutting corners somewhere else. So that those are probably the top two things I would I would be looking out for the the, mm -hmm. the, the experience of the sponsor team, and then just making sure that you're getting all of the information so that you can make an intelligent decision as to whether this is an investment for you or not. Sure, sure, sure. And, and that's where it's it's interesting you mention all of this. That uh, you know that's where I think uh, a podcast like this. Uh, is very important that you know you are educating the passive investors perhaps you're throwing out your personality as far as okay how, what you have done your experience for some of the horror stories because real estate is never a straight path as we all know there are all, always all sorts of challenges whether it's uh, properties or tenants or just you know some vintage stuff that pops up every now and then you know so all of those experiences is i like to say that that's what shapes you and kind of equips you that yes i can take on a 100 unit 200 unit deal and as a team we can see it through and, and as you rightfully pointed out it's, it's really that experience of the entire team and how what they have done that counts you don't want to be you know kind of a complete newbie coming on and trying to you know just be there and you would be almost like a uh, you know as we call it like just with the dear lights i mean geez you know you would be like really running <laughs> scared yeah. right <laughs> so, by the way it doesn't have to be the specific you know main syndicator i mean just so as long as there's somebody on the team that has done especially if they're venturing into a new asset class like if sure. you're, you're an in multifamily and then suddenly there's a self-storage deal well you want to make sure somebody on that team has some experience or they're partnering with an operator that really knows that business and because that's you know knowing multifamily doesn't necessarily equate to you know, mobile home parks sure. or you know self-storage or you know any other type of deal absolutely absolutely and speaking of you know syndications and you know what it allows right uh, mauricio that it's it's so exciting from my own eyes right uh, could you maybe perhaps in your words uh, mauricio kind of explain that uh, you know people are all enamored about stock or you know the recent bio stock because of the pandemic or perhaps you know some other technology stock that may be trending up people are all fascinated about that but they do not realize that these private placement uh, or you know the syndication opportunities that come along are incredibly powerful and, and just the resilience that sometimes it can give as a hedge against you know let's say the uh, Wall Street and stuff like that. Could you maybe share some of the success stories that you may have experienced uh, uh, so far? Sure. I mean, the, the, the benefits of a private placement that I've seen are really twofold. One is, um, unlike the stock market or anything that's out of the public, the public's a pretty much a perfect market. Like, you're not getting any, any advantages by being able to see something that nobody else sees. It, it's a sure. perfect market. That's stock. I mean, there's, a, there's so many transactions going on that the price that you're paying is, is the supply and demand price. With a private placement, especially, and in real estate, there's so much opportunity to take advantage of imperfect markets. Uh, and so just because even on a particular property, you could be picking up a property because there's some sort of 
you know, circumstances behind the seller, they're forced to sell or, or they just don't see a particular, you know, value add opportunity that, that you can see. So it just gives you that, that, in, that imperfect market, I think, is, a, is, a, is something that allows private placements to offer, you know, really substantial returns versus, you know, on the stock market, you're really, <laughs> you're really gambling a little bit. Uh, and then the other one is just access. I've always believed, you know, with, with a private placement, you literally can pick up the phone uh, and certainly before you make the investment, just and talk directly to the management team, right? And once a sure. quarter, they're updating you, or once a month, they're updating you. You just don't get that with a, with a public stock, right? You're not going to call up, uh, you know, not the Bill Gates and Microsoft anymore, but you're not calling, you know, Tim, Tom Allen, Tim Allen, or whoever who's running Apple and ask them about something or, or, or give them your feedback. But with sure. a private placement, you do have more direct access to the, to the management team. Uh, and somebody, somebody's always going to be picking them taking your call if you're, if you're calling management team. So that, that level of con not control necessarily, but certainly on the front end of control, because you can certainly ask for things ahead of time. But I think those two things are, are what separates. And, and that's one of the reasons why private placements generally will, will produce much better returns than like to the stock. I mean, there's no way you're going to get a return of 50% annualized in the stock market on, on, sure. a, on a public stock, unless something crazy happens, right? Sure, sure. But that's not uncommon in private placement. I'm not saying that they're going to happen, but it's not uncommon because of the imperfect market. The, uh, an astute syndicator can pick off an asset that uh, that's just not really priced appropriately and benefit from that. Sure, sure, sure. And as you touched upon as well, uh, Mauricio, there is, you know, just the scale aspect, right? Whether we are talking about, uh, you know, let's say the multifamily or perhaps uh, the self-storage or mobile home parks for that matter, right? I mean, just the scale of it, like, you know, a little $10 bump or, you know, reduction in small number of expenses and things like that can have a, such an exponential impact, uh, you know, as we call the cap rate analysis and things like that. That kind of dovetails into just so much returns in NOI. And as you said, in a, in, in, in an imperfect market, uh, in, in some of an opportunistic situation, there are just so much upside in, uh, in some of the assets that we see all the time is that, boy, I mean, how we, we are just like believers in this thing kind of wonder that, geez, why don't more and more people believe in this and invest? And obviously, you know, as you know, Mauricio, you, you've seen a lot more clients, uh, you know, they, you see them on an everyday basis now, right? What are some of the sort of the best practices you see that the syndicators are doing on a daily basis? Or what are some of the hallmarks of uh, uh, kind of the successful uh, syndicators in your own eyes that you have seen so far? Well, you know, the good syndicators obviously have a lot of experience. So they've been doing this for a while that they've, you know, if they're doing it long enough, they've been going, they've already gone through prior down cycles, right? So sure. I mean, some of my top syndicators, they, they started pre 2008. So they've gone sure. through this kind of downturn. They've survived the downturn and many of them actually have thrived. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's a really, not only a good argument, I truly believe that the time to, to make your money is really on these downturns. Like once these downturns come around and you want to, you want to be investing when things are low, not at the top of the market. So, sure. so, so experience is, is by far the, 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 the number one thing in that particular asset class, again, sure. you know, the market. Um, and then the other, the other thing I see a lot is just, you know, the relationship, you know, just like anything else, this is a relationship business. So on, on the front end, obviously just the, the relationship that the sponsors have with the investors, but then just the constant communication that I see with their investors, keeping them up to date, uh, and and more so when things aren't necessarily going according to plan. You know, my sure. good friend Tim McElroy, one of the one of the risk advisors, he's one of the sure. top syndicators. He taught me, you know, communication in bad times builds trust. Like a lot of people, when things go bad, they stick their head in the sand and they don't they don't communicate or they don't return calls. 
that's the time that you want to double down. You want to triple down on your communication when things are not going well. I think most investors understand that things happen. And as long as you're being communicated with, things are great. And so the, the trust that gets built uh, with the syndicator is critical. And that's what allows them to continue to raise capital. It's because they've established that trust with those investors that you get to a point where they just have access to capital. You know, they yeah. don't have to go find new people because they already have a substantial list and those lists are people that have invested with them before and they've developed that trust, they've developed that relationship so that now when they need to, not need, when they find a new deal, people are chomping at the bit to give them the capital sure. or they're returning capital to the investors and the investors are like, well, I don't want the money. You, you know, let me give it right back to you. Right? Sure. <laughs> that relationship that they have, um, that way you're a farmer, right? As the saying goes, you're not a hunter, you're, you're farming your, your, your existing investors and your sure. new investors so that you don't have to go find new people. You, you, you establish that relationship with, uh, with your investors. I like that analogy a lot. You know, you're farming your existing sort of farm rather than, you know, hunting, uh, you know, in the woods for newer investors. I like that analogy a yeah. lot. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. And as you as well know, Mauricio, you know, a lot of experienced, uh, you know, and syndicators who've been there. I mean, they have raised so much capital. They are so well connected. They probably need to make just a few, like, you know, maybe four to five phone calls to raise, uh, you know, millions of dollars for their capital. I mean, I see this time and time they're, again. They're not, I, <laughs> I know, <laughs> know syndicators who will send one email and raise five, $10 million with an email before anybody looks at anything because they have that much level of trust there. There's only so much. In fact, I've got another client, another great client, who has had to, at some point had to set aside a percentage of the raise for new people because sure. his existing investors just wanted to keep giving him money sure. that if he didn't, if he just let the old people, the, the old people, the existing investors into the sure. deal, there was no room for new people. So he literally carved out 25% of every deal for new people to allow, allow his sure. list to grow. But, and that, that is not developed it's only developed with those relationships that, that this particular client has in his community. Um, and it's just the trust and relationship. Everything is a relationship business. Sure, sure, know. sure. And you, you coined the term there uh, earlier, Mauricio, saying return of capital. And, and it's interesting that return of capital comes in many forms, right? Like, you know, people are selling their, uh, you know, their, their assets and perhaps, uh, you know, trying to exchange into bigger and better properties. And we're talking about obviously 1031 exchange, or perhaps you have other sources of money where a chunk of money from IRAs can come in and things like that. Uh, could you maybe share, um, uh, Mauricio, that what is your experience about uh, the volume or perhaps the nature of, uh, you know, how much money is flowing through perhaps 1031 exchanges or perhaps IRAs based on what you've seen so far? IRAs for sure. There's a lot of capital flowing through IRAs. Once people understand that they have the option to invest in something other than what, what their broker is telling them, right? There's no legal requirement or limitation for your IRA to have to invest in mutual funds or whatever it is, that's just what the custodian offers. And if, if they, if you went to buy real estate, the custodian wouldn't get paid because that's not, they don't, they're not real estate brokers. So sure. <laughs> there's, but as you know, there's ways for you to invest in real estate. And so a lot of that happens uh, from, from IRAs. I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but, but certainly sure. every single deal I have will have some, at least one IRA, if not multiple IRAs. That's a great thing. 1031s a little bit less. Um, 1031s are, are a little bit more complicated. Sure. Uh, because as you know, a 1031 needs to be what we call a like-kind exchange, meaning if I, have, if I own a property 
I have to exchange it for another property. And a syndication sure. is typically an entity. It's an LLC. So you cannot sure. go from a property to an LLC. So we have to get a little bit more creative. And we can do it, but it just adds a little bit more level of complexity sure. to the syndicator. And then I think, at least lately, with the, you know, with the bonus depreciation and all of this other stuff that's from the, the latest tax reform, um, you know, it's possible to eliminate the taxes without the 1031. I mean, if you're working with a really good wealth strategist and a, and a CPA uh, that can structure it right for you, my experience has been, um, unless you're just a straight up W-2, which might be hard, but, it, but sure. certainly if you're a real estate professional or something, uh, you, you can get the same or very similar tax benefits um, through. So I don't, I don't see 1031s as much um, in the syndication world. You know, I've probably sure. done if I've done five of them in the last 12 months, I'd be shocked. Uh, sure. Although we're doing one right now, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's not something common because it just adds a level of complexity. Sure, sure, sure. Now, uh, just sh shifting gears a little bit, uh, Mauricio here. Um, we are obviously, you know, doing lots of investor relations, you know, raising capital, supporting deals and things like that. And there is this sensitive element where you have to be careful how the compensation is structured, uh, you know, around uh, how you are compensating various buckets within your uh, general partnership team. You cannot suddenly say that, hey, we are compensating X percentages for, you know, let's say the uh, raising of the capital and things like that. Uh, could you maybe share what are some of the best practices? Uh, when we are uh, kind of thinking about compensation for raising capital, like how, how it should be done, what are some of the elements that are involved around all of it? You mean for the GP specifically? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a little bit of a, I don't know, one of the things I've noticed over the past several years is just the, the, the amount, the, the number of GPs in a particular deal, the average GP number has gone through the roof. I mean, if I had sure. to graph it out, I mean, you know, a few years ago, you would see one, you would see a lot of times the syndicator is a one person show that is doing it, or maybe they have a partner and then maybe a third person and that was it. And now mm -hmm. I'm seeing, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, 12, you know, general partners, which, which makes it really challenging. But mm -hmm. honestly, I mean, I don't, if everybody's involved somewhat equally, there's really no reason that that, that compensation shouldn't be, shouldn't really be split equally. If there's three of you, you know, if it's not split equally, then, then you start asking some questions. Well, why not? And sometimes there's legitimate reasons. Sometimes, mm -hmm. You know, I may I may have a full time job, and I'm only going to be able to help you on the weekends and on evenings, and do you know sure. maybe a little bit of underwriting, and I'm, I'm not as involved as as a lead syndicator. Sure. And that's mm -hmm. fine. Or or maybe I'm just learning. This is my first time, and I want to get some experience. I'm going to come in. But if everyone's doing work, they really should all be compensated equally or very close to equally. Um, other than um, maybe the key principles, right? So a lot of times you bring in a specific, but they're not really sponsors, but they, they will be part of the general partner because they're signing on the loan. Sure. And so that's something that you would negotiate separately, but because they're not doing anything else other than really signing on the dotted line. And that's just sure. a negotiation. Uh, you certainly should not be paying anybody based on the amount of money they can raise. Sure. And that's what a lot of people get hung up on. And so it's even more important, I think, on the front end to get that nailed down ahead of time. So there's no even possibility that somebody gets an increase or a bump in percentage or compensation based on how much money they raise. Cause that sure. really should be immaterial to the compensation that they're getting. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of pitfalls, especially when it comes to compensating folks who have a bigger network, who can bring in more, most of the money. There's obviously, and I get it, there's obviously a premium and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, sure. mm -hmm. other than you need a license to go do all the stuff. Sure. And sure. so most of the time the syndicators don't have a license to do that. If they had a license, I would wholeheartedly agree that, hey, if I'm bringing in all the money, I should be getting compensated for that. And that's fine. But the, because that you don't have a license to do that, 
it's got to fall back into you're really getting compensated for the other work that you're doing. And, and uh, so it just, I, I just think it's going to be proportional to the amount of energy and time and expertise that you're bringing to the table. Sure, sure. And you said it right. I mean, it kind of goes to our next point where, you know, you're drafting the documents properly, making sure you're not making any mistakes, uh, you know, when you're doing all the due diligence around all these documents. Uh, so uh, in, in, in all of that, Mauricio, when, when would you advise that we engage your firm? Like, what's that process looks like? Are we involving you early on uh, when we are kind of submitting the letters of intent? Uh, or is it something uh, like we are involving your firm after letter of intent before our contract is accepted and things like that yeah i mean i'd, I'd like you know we like look if we're doing the real estate part obviously and we're preparing the purchase and sale agreement then typically we get we get contacted as soon as an loi gets accepted then obviously sure. we're, we're under the gun um, but if it's just a syndication piece we still want to get involved as early as possible most of the time i talk to folks even way ahead of time just to kind of get some preliminary stuff but then once they found a deal and their LOA is, LOI has been accepted, that's really when we should be contacted because what we're gonna do in that first call, that first meeting mm -hmm. is establish what exemption or what rules we're gonna play by. Sure. And mm -hmm. if we wait till the end or in the middle, in addition to just having being in a rush and having to have everything done, you know, really, you know, time crunch, you may have done all these things. You may wanna say, well, I wanna do a 506B Mm -hmm. uh, but you've been on social media advertising where you've been doing all these other things. Well, sure. well, you're not eligible for 506B. It's too sure. late. I mean, I have definitely had clients who, who have put a structure together. They send it to their investors. They basically just want me to paper it, which is the, one of the things we do, but we really, we really there to keep you in compliance. Sure. Uh, and I tell them, well, we can't do it this way because of whatever the problem is. You know, maybe mm -hmm. it's this particular case, I think it was a disguised commission. So we had some broker dealer issues mm -hmm. and they're like, well, I've already told my investors that this is the deal. And mm -hmm. my response is, sorry, like, I, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you that that's uh, you're, the way you structured it is in violation of the securities laws. And so sure. you can't do that. So you want to reach out early uh, so that we can establish what you can and cannot do when you're following that process throughout the timeline. Sure, sure. Thank you, Mauricio. Uh, also, you know, it's important to have various proper clauses in, uh, in our co contracts and, uh, you know, all the documents that we structure. And uh, one of the nice points you shared last time, uh, Mauricio, is about this force majority clause that kind of comes into these extraneous circumstances that yeah. we have, uh, you know, like let's say during the pandemic or some yeah. other uh, things, you know. Could you maybe share, uh, you know, what sort of is that uh, genesis of that uh, clause and how is that important and when does that enforcement come into play? Yeah, I mean, you know, the force majeure that's sometimes called sort of the act of God uh, clause, which is it's really just meant in general for, you know, hurricanes or tornadoes or things that you typically are not considering as part of this, especially if it's not in a place that is, that is uh, you know, if you're obviously in Oklahoma or something and you're used to tornadoes, that might not be an issue. But if I'm here in California uh, and we enter into a contract, Sure. I'm not thinking of tornadoes, right? I'm sure. not thinking, uh, you know, of, of a pandemic like the, the COVID. Sure. So there's always a, not always, you should have always a clause in your contracts, and especially purchase and sale agreements, but in general, contract in general, uh, that say, if there is some kind of an event that we really aren't taking into account, like this, sure. nobody thought about this global pandemic, mm -hmm. a, a devastating earthquake that destroys your property mm -hmm. or, you know, a hurricane or whatever, a tornado, then, then we're allowed to basically unwind the contract or cancel the contract. And we used it so many times, um, you know, especially actually, to be honest with you, with, uh, with the real estate guys and other clients who had hotel, you know, who are in the seminar business or sure. who have events, uh, you know, you get in a contract with a hotel and you've given them a deposit and 
you know, everybody's, you know, I'm going to pay you money to use your event. You're going to provide the service. But obviously with COVID that couldn't happen. So that was a clause that really both it's meant to protect both parties. Sure. But certainly if you paid money to someone and they no longer can, you know, you can't have an event or you can't have a circumstance due to one of these quote unquote acts of God, then the idea is we just unwind the contract, you know, no, it's not no harm, no foul, but essentially we unwind it. You return whatever monies I have and we're back to square one as if it never happened. Sure. Uh, and I think, you know, Today, it's super important for your purchase and sale agreements to have this force majeure. And I would, we've actually, and again, I'm happy to, if you want to link that too, I've got some, some templated language for force majeure that includes the- COVID. We will, we will certainly link it up, sure. Because the issue is, um, you know, what if again, I mean, we all saw what happened in the last time around, which is a lot of times lenders pulled out at the last minute because they were concerned. And they actually had some really good reasons why. Uh, but deals didn't go through after after the client went hard, their earnest money deposit went hard, and now the lender pulls out because of this COVID. Sure. Ordinarily, you would be, you know, you wouldn't be able to get your earnest money deposit mm -hmm. back because you cleared all your contingencies and you're off to close. Sure. But if you have a good force majeure clause that says, hey, in the event of this global pandemic, you know, happens, then we're just going to unwind. You would have been able to get your money back. So um, it's very important to have these force majeure clauses in general, and even more now with this COVID-19 and especially now that you're starting to see a little bit of, you know, especially, I mean, I'm here in California, we're starting to kind of roll back a little bit and there's just a lot of uncertainty of what it's going to look like in three months. Make sure that your purchase and sale agreements have this, this force majeure. And, and I would specifically recommend you already know it COVID-19 or any future global pandemics that may sure. arise. Right. Sure. Sure. Thank you. I like that a lot. Uh, that's incredible advice. Uh, and speaking of all the uncertainty and things like that, uh, Mauricio, you know, we're obviously going through the pandemic and now, uh, you know, obviously you spoke about the deals being unwinding lenders kind of, uh, you know, as we all know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are now requiring, you know, almost 12 to 18 months of, uh, you know, lender reserves. Uh, that obviously places so much onus on sponsors to raise that much, uh, you know, more capital uh, we also have a situation where the bridge debt is extremely limited or almost none so we're kind of seeing this whole um, kind of a revisitation of what has happened what happened rather uh, in 2008 like we went through a period of 2009 and 10 where you know pretty much the credit it was just a credit was absolutely challenged uh, so in your mind uh, Mauricio do you expect that we'll kind of go through that similar cycle of events that credit will be uh, sort of hard to get moving forward and like next few years might be extremely challenging from a uh, from an acquisition perspective or refinance perspective uh, I mean what are, what are you hearing from your uh, investors on a daily basis right now? You know, my personal thoughts, I don't think you're going to have necessarily, I don't see anything necessarily that you're going to have credit issues like you did in mm -hmm. 2008. Uh, in sure. fact, you know, the, if you can get a loan, the, the, the rates are as bad as low as, I mean, I'm seeing at sure. least on the single family side, you know, below three, I don't know what they are right now in commercial, but it's certainly low if you can qualify and get one. Sure. I think the biggest unknown, we just have an unknown and that's one of the issues the banks had originally uh, is we don't know how many people, after this is all said and done, end of the year, beginning of next year, whenever this is sort of comes and goes, how many of those 40 million unemployed that filed for unemployment, how many of those are going to go back to work? And how sure. many are going to end up unemployed? That's the big unknown. Hmm. If you could give me that answer, I can give you a better idea of where things are. But the more, the higher that number is, it just means there's less 
less demand for everything, less demand sure. for housing, less demand for rents because people are out of work and they're unemployed. So, you know, obviously we've been having a lot of the stimulus with, uh, you know, with direct payments, with PPP, with EIDL. Um, I actually saw a stat yesterday that income, household incomes have actually been going up because of all of this. <laughs> so, you know, we just don't know what it's going to look like once all the stimulus gets removed. You sure. know, is it going to get removed? When it's going to get removed? You know, the forbearances, you know, you can get sure. forbearances now. So we just don't know what it's going to look like. And, mm-hmm. and that's the big unknown. It's not necessarily, and that's something that I, I'm concerned about when I'm doing a, a, a syndication because I want to make sure I put those risk disclosures in there. Like sure. we, we all have an opinion as to what it's going to look like in six months, but nobody knows. And so I've got to, as the attorney, put my attorney hat on, I've got to assume worst case scenario, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? And I need to put all those disclosures in there just that in the event that does happen, nobody can come back and say, wait a minute, you never told me that, you know, rents could go down or occupancy could go down and, and because of COVID. And I'm like, well, we put it in there, even though we, we don't think it's going to happen or we hope it's not going to happen. We've got to put all those disclosures in the documents. So again, the investor can go in with an open eye and understand what those risks are and make sure that those rewards commensurate with those risks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it's been great, uh, Mauricio. Uh, as always, incredible insights and such a power show. So I appreciate your time today. Uh, please share with the listeners, uh, you know, how they can find you and learn more about your company and your services. You know, I'd really love, I'm trying to build my YouTube channel. So if you go to my YouTube channel and check out those videos, there's that video that we talked about, about establishing a substantive relationship. But if you could sure. subscribe to that, that would be great. And, and otherwise, you can always reach me at team, T-E-A-M, at Premier Law Group. .net. That actually comes straight to me, team at premierlogger.net. Uh, and then we'll, we'll link uh, a couple of those things below and, uh, and get to those uh, things that I mentioned. And uh, we'd love to talk to anybody who's interested. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for all your time. Uh, you know, uh, viewers and listeners of the podcast can also find us at uh, premiumcashflow.com where, you know, we have news articles and, uh, you know, uh, guests like Mauricio always on, on the podcast. Uh, we obviously have, uh, you know, different opportunities every now and then. So you can always connect with us. We can get on a short phone call and learn about your, uh, you know, experiences and what you're looking to do. Uh, and we can suggest some uh, things for you. So uh, thank you, Mauricio. Uh, it's been great coming on. Uh, and I look forward to chatting with you in another episode on some other topics as well. So thank you right. for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.